Uh, thank you. you. May be seated. Um, the youth can go off to their class right now and uh, get ready for their particular time of study together as they are apt to. Um, welcome. Welcome to Village Green Community Church, whether you're online or in person here. It's good to see everybody. Um, I'm going to just, uh, uh, before we get into content, I want to speak into something and about something this morning. Um, you heard during the announcement time that we are having a special memorial service on June the 10th. It's a Friday at 5.30, and I just want to speak into that. You know, for the last uh, two-plus years, um, you know, the world has been in, in turmoil. I'm not sure that's even an appropriate word. But for many of us in, our, in, in this congregation, we've lost a lot of loved ones during this time. So we want to take a special service to recognize those that we have lost in the last uh, two and a half years and to honor them and to remember them. Now, if you've lost somebody and you want to come together as part of this community and to have that loved one or those loved ones remembered and honored, um, please email me um, or contact the office. You can email me at leadpastor at villagegreenchurch.com or, again, the office at villagegreenchurch.com and uh, tell us how many are attending, uh, who you want to have remembered and honored, and uh, we'll get you onto the list for that particular evening. Now, here's another thing. You may just want to come and support those and just say, you are not alone. We are here for you. You know, we love you. We care for you. You're a part of this community. And we want to come together and support you during this time of grief. For some of you, um, you know, you lost loved ones at the height of the pandemic, and you weren't even allowed to bring family together or even to sit at a table and have a meal together and remember the person or the people that you've lost, okay? So this is a really important time where we get to grieve and acknowledge our grief and hopefully bring closure to many of you. And again, you may just want to come because you've been grieving the last few years, let alone anything else. So I invite you to be part of this really special service um, to be there for people. But again, if you've lost a loved one and you want to be part of that service, I want to invite you to um, email me and uh, have you as part of that service, okay? All right. Um, we are into a series uh, called Only Jesus. And I want to thank Jason Snellgrove and Brent Paul, who covered for the last couple of weeks while I was away. Thank you guys for the tremendous job you did. Um, now I feel intimidated that I've got to kind of better them or best them. So is it a contest? No, okay. So it's not a contest. But we're talking about a really important story today. And here's, here's it, it's stories like this that have always impressed me in the sense of, if you were to ask me, what is the most important thing to God? How would you answer that? What, what is the thing that God is yearning the most from us? What is it that God, and you can answer that question in so many different ways, but it's stories like the one we're going to look at this morning that crystallize in my mind so many places that, you know, that is articulated throughout the Bible, that if there's one thing, one thing that makes this entire life worth it, when it comes from the viewpoint of God, 
it is this thing that we're going to talk about today. Okay, so it's a very important story, and hopefully we're going to unpack this for you really, really well. So we're in Matthew um, chapter 8, and we're starting at verse 5. It's one of the stories of the three stories that are part of this particular chapter. But again, it's so key in so many of the things that it teaches us in this important thing that is uh, important to God. So uh, beginning at verse 5, we read the following. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer or a centurion in, in the original language came and pleaded with him and pleaded with him, Lord my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Now, um, let, me, let me read this next verse. I was going to make a comment, but I'll come back to make that comment. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. All right? Stop right there. Now, I find it fascinating that we have this impression of Roman centurions or, you know, military people. And I was, I was kind of taken aback when I first read this story many years ago and saw that it was a servant that he is concerned about, that he's pleading with Jesus to come and to heal. I would have expected, you know, my son or my daughter or my parent or someone like that. But here it is, a servant. So it tells you right away, you know, something culturally that we probably misunderstand from time to time that this servant is so important, this, this servant is so much a part of the family, that this centurion goes out of his way to find Jesus in order to heal him. And Jesus willingly says, okay, I will come. The many, there's no hesitation on Jesus' part. I will come, and I will heal him. Okay? Now, Capernaum is, is a, a, a really important, you know, place name and, and place in the biblical picture. In fact, Jesus did a lot of uh, ministry in this particular area. Uh, it was on a main road. It was, uh, you know, this thoroughfare that a lot of uh, market uh, activity happened. So there was a lot of military presence. Um, this is also the city that Matthew himself is from. Okay, the, the Matthew that is writing this particular gospel that we're getting this story of, he's from this area, okay? So, you know, to have the military presence and then the tax collectors in the same area isn't, you know, a coincidence. The two go hand in hand. All right, so this is, this is part of what is happening here. Um, I think Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law here. Um, the paralytic, I think the very first message we did is about the paralytic that got lowered down in the roof, from the roof into you know, the crowd. This is where this, this, this happened as well. So this is a really important part of, of the ministry of Jesus and just what has happened here. So obviously this Roman centurion has heard about other things that have happened in this particular area. And Jesus' reputation has gone before him. And this guy comes and pleads for his servant. Now, for Jesus to say, I will come and heal him, there's some argumentation in the Greek language whether or not Jesus is saying, asking a question. Should I come and heal him? Is it, is it me that you're really asking to do this? And it sort of prompts the next part of 
the passage that I want, I want to read. Here's the response from the Roman soldier. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. By the way, when was the last time anybody said to you, I'm not worthy? And who did it in a positive way. Did it in a way that was honoring to you, not in a self-deprecating way, but recognized their place and who they were in relationship to you. That's not terminology or language or a posture that we see in culture today at all. Here's a person who, as a centurion, by the way, would have been in charge of at least 100 soldiers under his command, that he had you know, a place of authority, a place that, 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 that had him in charge of a number of people that whatever he said would go. But here he is, a person who grew, grows up in a culture of pure authority, and he says to Jesus, I am not worthy, and says it with a full heart of reality, if we can put it in that particular way. You know, that's a sense of humility, isn't it? The posture of humility that comes from this Roman centurion is really something that, that maybe we miss when we read this text first and foremost. But I think for Jesus, he would have cued into the humility of this Roman centurion right away. I'm, I'm not worthy of this. And what I'm asking of you, what I'm asking of you is something that from a lower person to who I recognize that you are is something, you know, beyond my capacity, but I need you for this. Just say the word, he says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. So he's taken the experience of his own authority and using that as a model and an expression of how he understands the authority of Jesus. And I, I feel this is incredibly striking because there's no demand from this Roman centurion on Jesus. It's not like you, you got to come and do this. You have to, because you're the one that everybody tells me can do this. And I'm used to getting my way, or I'm used to, you know, like there's none, none of that that happens. There's this incredible humility, which translates to what I think is the way he feels about his particular servant. This is a man who cares. This is a man who breaks every kind of stereotype that we could potentially have about Roman soldiers, warriors, fighters, people who take orders, get it done no matter what. And yet, just the context of, of, of what is being built up here is, you know, 
outside of what most of us understand contextually about the times, the place, the people. And here is a servant who is really important to his master. I think that moves the heart of Jesus, and I think Jesus recognizes this right away, and it is why I believe Jesus said right away, I'll come and I will heal him. Because Jesus sees something in this Roman soldier that is beyond the stereotype. And you know what? I think that's when we have the eyes of Jesus, is when we see beyond the stereotype, when we see beyond the category, when we see beyond the picture, when we see beyond the gossip, when, when, we, when we see beyond you know, um, the impression or any of that, and we see people through the eyes of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think that's such a hard thing to do. It is so easy to, to, you know, to put people in a particular box, put people in a particular category, but to see people through the eyes of Jesus awakens us to the things that God wants us to see in other people. And sometimes we have to step back. And there's, you know, uh, there's, there's moments in my life I've had to step back and I say, Lord, I'm reacting right now. I'm reacting to this particular situation. Um, I'm comfortable, uncomfortable with this person, or I'm not comfortable with the way this conversation is going. I don't know if you've ever been in those situations. And there's times I've had to step back, I've had to pause, and I said, Lord, what do you want me to see from your eyes about what is happening right now? I don't know if you've ever had to do that, but doesn't that often change the entire posture that you take with someone. And how many, for instance, how many of the disciples with Jesus in that moment would have seen the Roman soldier coming and would have said, Jesus, be careful of this guy. He's going to demand something of you. Or, you know, he's the enemy. Now, here's the response of Jesus when he hears this. <laughs> when Jesus heard this, he was, can we say that word together? Amazed. Okay. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but what do you think it would take to amaze Jesus? Okay. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know we're talking, you know, divine son of God. We know, um, you know, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate son of God, you know, come from heaven down to earth and all that stuff, was there at creation. You know, we've got all this, you know, incredible theology about, about Jesus. And yet, we have Jesus being surprised, amazed, startled, you know, you know, Blown away? Okay. Yeah. Right? What do you think it takes to amaze Jesus? Now, that's what I'm going to, we're going to unpack this because this is so incredibly important. If you want to amaze Jesus, you amaze Jesus with only one thing and one thing alone. And that's what this passage is all about. 
See, do you know that in the Gospels, there's only twice where Jesus is amazed? The same Greek word, and this, and by the way, this is, this, you know what this word means in Greek? Amazed. Okay? Like, there's no <laughs> running around this. It's like everybody around Jesus at this particular time would have said, he's surprised, like, he's shocked by this. Everybody would have recognized it. But there's only twice in the Gospels that Jesus is actually amazed. Two instances. By the way, there's a parallel story in Luke 7 of this particular story, and it talks about being amazed. So it's the same story in another Gospel, but talks about being amazed. But there's a story in Mark 6 where it's a passage where Jesus has gone back to Nazareth, and he's teaching in the synagogue in Mark 6, 1 to 6. And we're told that the people that were listening to Jesus in the synagogue were absolutely amazed by his teaching. They were, they were uh, amazed at, at the wisdom of, of his teaching and the power that he had to perform miracles. They were absolutely amazed. And one, one would think that witnessing Jesus in that context would have, would have you know, energized them to some kind of form of belief. But what we read in the text is that they began to scoff at Jesus and they derided his heritage and made fun of his family and they refused to believe that anybody from Nazareth could be making the claims that he is making. So much so that they were even offended by Jesus. How dare a simple carpenter whose family they knew dare to present himself as the Jewish Messiah and the divine son of God? The text continues to say that their faith was so lacking. Now, I don't know what to do with this, but, but this is what the text says. The, the faith was so lacking that Jesus couldn't do many miracles there. He could only touch a few sick people and heal them. Imagine that. And what the text says is that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. And the second story is the one that we're dealing with today. The positive aspect of faith, the positive aspect that the two times in the Gospels where Jesus is amazed, he's amazed at the lack of faith that people have. At a, in a place, in a town where they should have recognized Jesus for who he was. And then in this story, Jesus is amazed by the faith of this Roman centurion who no one would have expected to have the kind of faith that he does. So if you want to amaze Jesus, it's not the great things that you would do. It's not the great you know, kingdoms that you would build for him. It's not the great works that you would take upon yourself to do it in Jesus' name. It's the amount of faith that you have behind doing those things that matter the most to God. Faith is such a precious commodity to God. It's such an important commodity to God. That is why, that is why it's so derided in our culture. That's why it's so targeted. That's why 
People treat it with humility. That's why people will say, well, you know, faith is for the weak. Faith is for those that have nothing else. And yet faith is the thing that amazed Jesus. It amazed him when it was lacking to a degree that it should not have been. And it amazed Jesus when it was present, when no one expected the degree of faith that you know, existed in, in the person. This is crucial to understanding why Jesus marveled at, at the centurion's faith. The, you know, and, and what's, what's really striking about this is the centurion says, you don't even have to come to my home. I know that from where you are, you can heal. Do you know in the, in the Jewish Talmud, there's, there's this, um, this, this section that talks about uh, to carry out a miracle that was from a distance was considered ex- incredibly extraordinary. It was one thing to heal a person when you're you know, beside them and you're touching them, but to be you know, p- you know, far away and to just kind of say you're, that person is healed was an, an incredible miracle to the Jewish people. And yet the centurion had that kind of faith in Jesus. Do you realize this is also a picture of prayer, by the way? Because isn't that what we do when we pray? Are we asking Jesus from a distance to do something miraculous in our lives? Because we send word through prayer and we wait from a distance, however we want to understand that metaphysical kind of reality. From a distance, we're asking Jesus to do a miracle. That's the kind of healing that was, that's been expressed in prayer many, many times. So how important is faith? I've often said faith is the final exam in the afterlife. I know people get really upset with me that. But faith is the one exam that you have to pass. And we'll talk a little bit later about what the Bible says about faith and, and the core of faith. But here's Jesus, amazed at the, this particular centurion, okay? Um, let me continue reading because here's Jesus' answer to this very, very... Um, amazed the situation that he finds himself in. So he's turning to those who were following him, and he said, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Now think about that for a minute. What an indictment to say that. I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. What history does Israel have? Like, you know, the, the, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the temple, the tabernacle, the, the prophets, the law, like you know, the writings, the, you name it, the list is, is endless. The miracles, the, the, the exodus, the things that God did. And here is Jesus saying, I haven't seen faith like this that I'm experiencing from this Roman centurion in all of Israel. I don't know about you. Well, that's quite an indictment, isn't it? And I tell you this, that many Gentiles or, you know, people outside of 
the Jewish faith, will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at the feast of the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, notice that, those for whom the kingdom was originally prepared for, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, with, with every amazement of Jesus when it comes to faith, he has this warning. Listen. This is incredibly, you know, true f- for you to know and to recognize. Okay? He's pointing out the sad truth that this Roman centurion who we would have easily judged as being outside of the kingdom, outside of the people of God, who had who would, you know, be from a culture that we would anticipate would be, would be violent, not necessarily attuned to even the needs of a servant. And yet this person, for all the stereotypes that we would have of him, has a faith that amazes Jesus. Wow. Wow. And the Pharisees who would have grown up in a rigorous Hebrew religious system are missing something as incredibly simple and incredibly powerful and incredibly important to God is this thing called faith. Thing called faith. You know why? Because great faith is so rare. Isn't it? Isn't great faith so rare? And isn't it in, in, in the world, in the culture, in the society that we live in, everything seems to be attacking our sense of faith, any kind of faith. I, I, I you know, I, again, that's probably a whole sermon series, but, you know, we are continually being attacked and, and kind of whittling away the faith that we have. And, and our, our doubts increase, our, our sense of uh, whether God is even in charge anymore gets attacked. You know, there's so many things that, that get attacked. But faith is so, so important. So important, in fact, that it amazed Jesus. I don't know about you. Okay? I don't think Jesus was even amazed that Toronto lost last night. We're going to save you the pain. You can, you can come to the grief service on Friday. Um, and, and we'll actually put the team up on, on, the, on the screen, and you can say a few words if you want. So, sorry, I know, yeah. That was, I know, that was a cheap shot. The fact that you'd love me still after a cheap shot, that's, yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's how the passage ends. Go, Jesus says. And Jesus said to the Roman officer, go. Go back home because you believed. You believed. It has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Okay? Now, I know it ends in a miracle. And I know we can kind of uh, say, you know, if I just have 
enough faith, that we just have enough belief, and things will work out, okay? In this particular case, yeah, it did work out that way. It doesn't work like that all the time. But if you miss the amazement of Jesus, you're going to miss the core of the story. Because as far as I'm concerned, for Jesus to heal or Jesus to touch people and, and all that kind of stuff, that's the easy part. It's prompting the faith of people that's hard. It's growing the faith of people. And there's times where Jesus, or times in our lives where God is more interested in growing our faith, in prompting our faith, in in testing our faith, that sometimes there's things that happen in our lives that Jesus just leaves alone or lets go or allows to shape our faith in a way that nothing else in life could. What a lesson it would have been to everyone that was part of that crowd to see the response of Jesus and just how important faith is, especially to a culture that Jesus was concerned about because if anyone would have, should have had the faith, it would have been the Jewish people. Okay? So how important is faith? I'm going to run through these, these points and talk about these three important facts concerning faith that come right out of the Bible. I, I don't care if you get into Genesis. I don't care if you get into Revelation. This, across the entire spectrum of the 66 books, is a summary statement of why faith is so important, okay? Um, first of all, the importance of faith. You know, we kind of highlighted it during this message. But everyone that you're going to talk about, when it talks about anything religious, everybody's going to go to the good works thing, not the faith thing. Everyone's going to say, well, I got to be good because good is what God is most interested in. Good is what, you know, gets God motivated to get on my side. But that's not true. That's not biblical. Faith is what's more important. In fact, for those of faith, by the way, the demands of good are even more stressed, okay? Okay? Um, God expects every human being to be good. That's just a natural outworking of what it means to be a human being. We all recognize bad people, and we kind of say to ourselves, you're not really acting human, are you? Or maybe you do think that's human, but, you know, if you want to take a positive view of humanity, when people do not act good or toxic or whatever, there's just something inhuman about it, isn't it? Because we anticipate people to act a particular way, to be good. So the Bible, you know, expects good. But if you're a Christian, that good, um, you know, monitor gets, gets ramped up, you know? Jesus will say, okay, it's nothing to love your family because you're, you're flesh and blood. It's natural to love. So, so if you're a Christian, I want you to love your enemies. Gee, thanks. Okay? So this whole idea of good gets ramped up if you're a believer. There's all these expectations. Okay? Somebody slaps you on the one cheek, you turn and give them the other cheek. Okay? There are different levels of good, especially if you're a believer. Now, the object of that faith is really, really important too, right? Because we can talk about faith, and faith can be this nebulous thing. Faith is just anybody, anything, anywhere. 
Okay? Faith could be a pineapple for all you know, you know? It doesn't, you know, but the Bible's always about the object of the faith. In the Old Testament, it was Yahweh. This, this one monotheistic idea. And of course, that's born out of a culture and a time where everybody had a whole host of gods, a plethora of gods. There was a god for agriculture. There was a god for family. There was a god for, you know, you know no matter what it, what it was, it had a god for all kinds of things. And if you went to war, there was a god for that. And then all of a sudden, Yahweh appears. Yahweh does these miraculous things. Uh, brings this nation out of, out of slavery and, and forms this nation, forms a covenant with that nation and the law and all, all of this kind of stuff. And the object was not the Baal, not the Ashtoreth gods or anything. It was Yahweh and Yahweh alone. In the New Testament, it's Jesus. Like the object of the faith becomes even clearer. It becomes even more pronounced. And now we have God in flesh and blood. Second person of the Trinity. And, and that's where we, we learn the, you know, the, the Trinitarian expression of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the object of that faith, you know, there's, there may be many roads to Jesus, but there's only one path from Jesus to the Father. Period. That's what the Bible teaches. I wish I was, you know... I was going to say, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not making this up. This is, this is you know, as, as, as plain and simple from the Bible as, poly, as possible. And number three is the quality of authentic faith. And the quality of authentic faith comes in, in I think, three branches, if I want to say it that way. One is obedience, second is trust, and the third is surrender. Authentic faith looks is in those three particular categories. Obedience, you know, the practical day-to-day. If I'm a follower of Jesus, what does that mean for me on a day-to-day basis? What it means about the moral and ethical expectations that, that Jesus has in my life? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, if I'm obedient to the person of Jesus, what does it mean? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. What is the one commandment that Jesus gave that summarized all the commandments of the Old Testament? Okay. Love, yeah. And love your name. Absolutely. That's our mission statement. Okay. Right? If you can't remember that, remember that the Christian four-letter word is love. Simple as that. Okay? Is it easy? Absolutely not. Very hard, but obedience. Okay? Third, second is trust. Second is trust. Now, some of you, some of you are going, Johnson hasn't even talked about belief. Like, I thought faith and belief were synonymous. Okay? And they are in many ways. Belief is. But the problem that I have with belief is sometimes we can think of belief as this mental assent. Okay, here's my doctrinal statement. Here's the way I understand doctrine. And it's like, okay, I adhere to all of these things, and that's what I believe. Okay, unfortunately, that's the way we think of things. Okay, but in Greek and in Hebrew, belief has this trust element as, as a second 
part of it. Because I believe these things, this is how I live my life. This is how I, you know, this is what I believe. This is how I'm, I'm obedient to it. And my life is a reflection of the things that I believe because I trust the person that I claim to have faith in. Remember, I don't know if you guys remember, but we have orthodoxy, which is right doctrine. We have orthopraxy, which is right practice. And then we have ortho... Ortho what? Ortho... Orthopedic? <laughs> and you, yeah, and that didn't even come from you. <laughs> yeah, orthocardio, orthocardia, okay, which is right heart, okay? Those three are so important. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have to embrace all three of those. And, 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 I, and I've said it before, you can have right doctrine, you can have right practice and still be an abuser. Or still be a hypocrite. Or still be a legalist. Because the right heart is so vitally important. And when we trust Jesus, okay, it's all about having the right doctrine, right practice, and the right heart. Okay, here's, here's the last one, surrender. Surrender. If there's one thing that Jesus demonstrated in his life is a sense of humility. And to be a Christian means to be a person of humility. Humility is so vitally important in a person's life that we live our lives in surrender to him. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's not, it's not, you know, I, you ever had this prayer session? Lord, this is what I want. And he goes, you know, that's not going to work. You ever had that prayer? Maybe not. I, maybe you got everything you wanted from Jesus. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But there are just times where we have to surrender. And, the, and that's where faith becomes the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. Do you have the faith like the centurion? Do you have a day-to-day -day walk with Jesus that's obedient to him, that trusts him, surrenders to him, and allows your life to be something that if Jesus was walking alongside of you, could whisper into your ear, and he would say, I am amazed by your faith. Wouldn't that be beautiful to hear? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful story of this beautiful interaction between an unexpected recipient of Jesus' grace and healing, but of Jesus' amazement of this Roman soldier's faith that paints such a beautiful picture of the entire Bible's teachings on what it means to be a person of faith. Lord, I know for many of us here, in the context of the times that we live, you know, our faith is battered and bruised. We struggle. It gets attacked. 
we have our doubts. Just so many things that make us wonder whether that faith is worthy of pursuing. And yet, Lord, time and again, we read stories like this where faith is so important that when it becomes evident in a context where we weren't expecting it and, and expecting it to such a degree that it left Jesus amazed. Lord, may we be a church that has such faith that we live it out in a way that draws people into that faith. And Lord, thank you for stories like this that remind us of how important it is for us to persevere in faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.